You're listening to The Doers Podcast, right here on The Doers Network. And now, here's your host, Donald Robinson II. Welcome everyone to The Doers Network. I'm Donald Robinson II, your host. And on the line, we have Mr. David Palmer. And we're going to talk to him about his business. I'm not going to share it with you yet. Some of you may be hopefully happily excited once you hear what he's doing. Welcome to the family, David. And how you doing? Very well. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your over 10,000 subscribers and looking through the roster of individuals you've spoken with. There's an impressive uh, list of Detroiters there that are doing some really amazing things. It's it's humbling to be joining their circle. Uh, we're, we're welcome to have you aboard. Just more than welcome to have you aboard, man. So tell the listening audience, what is your line of business? So I'm a multidisciplinary strategist, facilitator convener and realtor, and I'm based here in the city of Detroit. Uh, my primary consulting areas of focus are workforce development, uh, nonprofit sustainability, and then politics and strategy. Uh, all three of those get intertwined with each other, but can be broken apart into their unique components um, because that's you know the things that are affecting our lives. And then as a realtor and associate broker, I work with uh, Detroiters to help buy and sell homes. And when we go to the suburbs, we uh, do the same work. Well, let me ask you this, David. And all that is sounding wonderful. And I know you're doing great work in the community. It, can you tell us if you're ever having any experience of combining the two between housing and the community involvement? Oh, most definitely. I've been uh, teaching the, the realtors portion of the first-time homebuyer class the Michigan State University Extension for over six years uh, and was uh, invited to uh, complement the work that Focus Hope uh, is doing in this space. So the MSU Extension at Focus Hope uh, runs a monthly first-time homebuyer class where uh, Detroiters and Wayne County residents uh, get a chance to learn about the home buying process. And as, as a realtor and a project manager coming to uh, shed some light on the experience for these individuals, it's uh, it's really rewarding seeing uh, folks that have been saving for a long time finally get a chance to own their property rather than pay somebody else for the pleasure of living. Sure, sure. Now, in terms of your community involvement, working with nonprofits and the like, what what are some of your services you provide in that area? Sure. So uh, I was working with an organization called the Workforce Intelligence Network for Southeastern Michigan. And WIN, uh, for short, uh, is a collaboration of the 10 community colleges, including Wayne County Community College District, Henry Ford College, Oakland, et cetera, and the six Michigan Works agencies. So DESC Michigan Works here in the city uh, and Oakland County Michigan Works and, and other areas in Macomb. Um, so there I was uh, primarily a convener and a facilitator. So I helped really big companies and really small companies uh, get together to try to address their workforce needs. So if you unravel the knowledge, skills, and abilities that are intertwined with doing community facilitation work, you're really doing strategic planning and uh, managing expectations around communications. Uh, so everybody's coming from a slightly different place and has different history and understanding of things. And, and how do you get a group of people working together to address their common needs, sure. which oftentimes have about an 80% overlap with what their end goals are. So uh, whether you're sitting in the room with a, a giant automaker or a tier one supplier or a healthcare system or an IT firm in Detroit, um, or, you know, a neighborhood block club where you have neighbors getting together trying to work on projects. Um, I've scanned sort of the entire spectrum of uh, big names to just neighbors. Okay. So do you advise, like, let's say, block clubs or any other nonprofit service wants to get started? Do you advise them on how to get started, or do you, like, provide sure. like, advice, for, advice, advice for funding or anything like that? Yeah, so it was interesting. I was invited to join uh, Councilman Raquel Castellano-Lopez's uh, leadership series, and there were about 30 neighbors from across District 6 in Detroit that are engaged in their sort of micro-communities inside of District 6. So D6 is the largest by land mass in the city of Detroit and runs from, um, you know, Springwells and Del Rey and the southwest, south-southwest side of the city all the way up to Corktown and into Core City. Uh, so if you can kind of picture all those zip codes on the map, um, you know, you have folks that 
are dealing with tremendous air pollution and, and real challenges in, in deep southwest side. Uh, we've got the new bridge coming in. Uh, so all these community groups are, you know, doing their thing within their, their neighborhoods. So one of the things that we talked about in that course was, you know, how do you become a block club in the city? So there's forms you got to file. Uh, if you want to become a nonprofit, then there's another layer of forms you need to file. Right. And if you want to get into the space of having an actual bank account, then, okay, now you're getting sophisticated and you need to start thinking about, you know, who are your board of directors and the fiduciary responsibility they have to uh, the federal government, state government, and community uh, by getting a nonprofit designation. So, um, you know, setting up the accounting system and the HR systems and training the board how to do things are, are all projects that I've really enjoyed over the years. Oh, that's excellent, man. I could, I could, I commend you and congratulate you for all the great work you're doing, man. Are you, uh, are you a native Detroiter or are you, were you born somewhere else? How, where, where were you born at and, and how, how was your upbringing? So I was technically born in Pontiac. Okay. Uh, my family, I grew up in South Lyon, uh, which is far from the city. Uh, actually, there were more horses than humans in the community when I was in elementary school. Yeah. And today, South Lyon is essentially a suburb of Novi, which Novi is a suburb of whatever. Right. Um, so um, as soon as I could drive, uh, which was in the early 90s, I basically moved into St. Andrews Hall. Uh, so I've considered myself uh, um, a Detroiter since basically 1992, 93, um, but I've lived all over the state and I lived in Maine for a number of years. So um, I chose to move to Detroit uh, and buy here uh, five years ago and was actually able to close on a house three years ago. Uh, so I have a condo in Hubbard Richard and I'm uh, pleased to be able to have uh, St. Anne's church uh as my uh view every morning when i get up and have a cup of coffee okay yeah that's a great view great great view um how did you how did you in terms of you know growing up and going to school and things like that how did you transition into the business you're in how did you get started with your business Sure. I've always had sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, and that means that uh, you're okay with a modest amount of troublemaking and independence in your thinking Yeah, um, is, is one of the common things that I've seen in, in entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs see value in areas where there are underserved resources. Uh, so whether it's starting a new business or assisting the community or, or creating a social enterprise at a nonprofit or doing political education and advocacy, all of those things sort of tie into entrepreneurship. Uh, so I started working when I was 13 because I wanted a pair of shoes and my parents said, you know, in an offhanded remark, well, you need to go get a job. Okay. Uh, and luckily that was long enough ago where a 13 year old could go get a paycheck. Um, I don't think you can start working until you're like 15 or 16. Now. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to check the, the Michigan statutes on that. But so anyway, I started working in restaurants when I was 13 and uh, basically uh, was running kitchens and became sort of a self-trained amateur chef by the time I was done and uh, was an assistant smoke master and doing seafood on the coast in Portland, Maine. Uh, so that working in a kitchen is, is, you've ever worked in a kitchen before or worked in a, in a restaurant at all, then you know that that's an exercise in teamwork and communication. Oh yeah. Uh, so as a kitchen person, you're really managing projects on timelines that are by other people's schedules, not your own. Uh, so you have to figure out how to do 60 things at once and do it well and also make sure it tastes good as it goes out the door. So the food prep, the cleaning, the obsession with making sure that things are done appropriately and, and to the customer's expectations really helped train me to think from an entrepreneurial perspective. So that when I moved into the office space world of, you know, managing small businesses, so I, I managed an environmental services company in Ann Arbor for a number of years, uh, and then managed a small high-tech company in Ypsilanti for a number of years. And, you know, that decade running other people's companies uh, taught me a lot about, you know, wearing 60 hats at once. So right. you're the HR director, you're the controller, you're the import-export logistics operator, uh, you're the marketing, advertising, sales, and this new social media thing back when it was still new. Uh, all those things were sort of thrown into the cocktail of running a small business. 
Yeah. Uh, so when I was sort of done with that, I shifted to real estate um, because really an environmental services company is running management for a real estate transaction in a lot of cases. Okay. And uh, I found when uh, a few years later at the request of a, a friend to say, hey, you got to go talk to these smart people at the Workforce Intelligence Network. And I think you need to get a job there. And it worked out. And I had a really great time for about five and a half years. Okay. So you said earlier that you had some inkling early on that you would be an entrepreneur. Is there any experience where you said to yourself that I'm definitely going to be a doer and I'm going to be having my own, my own path. Was there any like life experience that inspired you to, to go that route at all? Well, I, I found a lot of that inspiration from the inequities that I saw in the financial and political world. Uh, from a very early age, I never really understood why some people are fundamentally treated differently than others right. for really no darn good reason. Right. And that is sort of at the core of, of how I think about things. So I'd be a much wealthier individual and may own some of the tall buildings if I were you know, monetizing things throughout life in, in a way that didn't think about equity. Right. Uh, so... Uh, I'd rather be a co-conspirator with individuals that are seeking to lift up their community than to be sort of a passive ally that is really just out for themselves. Um, so in politics, you don't always get clear-cut decisions. So uh, helping candidates think about how to run for office or create a campaign or manage the database behind the scene or do the fundraising that's required to get your voice out. Uh, and then to filter those candidates based on sort of a sense of, is this person like genuinely doing this for the right reason? And do you think they will survive the process once they get elected? Uh, because just getting elected isn't enough. You've got to be able to keep moving forward an agenda, which isn't popular in a lot of cases. So I, I think about our, our Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who I was uh, you know, honored to be able to help support in her run for office. Yeah. And the things that she's dealing with every day are outside of the realm of reasonable for most people. Yeah. And, and what's wonderful about her now, for many reasons, controversial or otherwise, she's getting national publicity based on her standing. She's taking in on her principles and defending her values. So that's a great thing to see. And she's homegrown right here, you know, from here. You know what I mean? Yep. Indeed. So when you get up every day, David, and you're out there doing your thing, whether it be with real estate or whether we're working in the community or helping build nonprofits and, and community organizations, what do you? What inspires you to do this work? What gets you up every day and 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 tells you to get motivated to do it? It's the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward. Is I've been able to listen to my internal compass uh, in a way that makes me be able to sleep well at night, uh, and that means that I've set aside you know some of the trappings of ego, strategy, wealth and these sorts of things that, that um, are, are much easier to accumulate if you can set aside and look the other way. Um, so learning how to say no was one of the hardest things I ever uh, had to go through. And when I wake up in the morning and I get to look at, you know, the, the beautiful downtown skyline from uh, one side and the St. Anne's from the other, you have this sort of interesting weight of, uh, the Ambassador Bridge is out the front door as well, so you, I see the international commerce that's going on all the time with all the trucks going across the bridge. Right. And I see St. Anne's, which is an institution that was formed within a few days of, of uh, the French landing on the shores of Detroit and colonizing this community uh, for European benefit. Uh, and then seeing the, the downtown skyscrapers that were built uh, during a time mostly when uh, Detroit was at near the pinnacle of, uh, of commerce and, and wealth in the world. And seeing over our lifetimes, you know, the 30 some odd years that I've been in and around the city, um, seeing all of the things that have transpired uh, post-industrial um, is, is, is motivating because, again, you know, there are people that are suffering for the, uh, for the results of, of what oligarchs have you know, inflicted on us. Do you, do you ever think that there could be a happy medium, let's say, within our system of capitalism where you're, you're making profits and you're maybe even creating wealth at the same time helping people? Do you think that's all possible? Oh, most definitely possible. Um, I would encourage your readers to start doing some research about community capital and B corporations. 
so community capital is the idea that uh, you can circulate funds within your community rather than sending all of your dollars to Wall Street. Uh, so if, if you're interested in truly diversifying your investment portfolio, then uh, and you go to any almost any investment advisor, they're going to tell you to buy stocks, bonds and keep cash positions and yep. maybe have some some hard metal. Um, but all of that is through the lens of 90 over 95 percent of all of Americans savings for wealth right. uh, are, are funneled through Wall Street. Right. So community capital movement is saying that. Um, you know, several years ago, we helped get some legislation passed in Michigan saying that uh, um, uh, companies, uh, it was an exemption from uh, uh, U.S. code uh, that said that unaccredited investors, uh, so individuals within a net worth less than a million dollars, could not directly invest in small businesses uh, without going through a broker and an IPO on Wall Street. Right. Um, so now, now you have the ability intrastate, so inside the state of Michigan, and there's new rules that have been promulgated to allow for uh, um, interstate uh, development, where you can actually start a small business and uh, or maintain your small business and do a debt or equity based raise uh, from the community. So okay. uh, there's a $10,000 limit uh, investment from individuals into those companies and places like Build Institute and Bamboo and Prosper Us and, um, you know, a lot of the great entrepreneurship work that's been funded by the New Economy Initiative and the Kellogg Foundation and the Fifth Philanthropy throughout the area um, is, is creating a marketplace where, where people are building uh, new businesses. Uh, and ultimately, to have capital to help grow those businesses over time, there's a gap between sort of that bootstrap startup and how do you take it to a, a second stage mature company. Um, and community capital is one way to do that. And when I'm talking with neighborhood groups that want to buy those six lots uh, to hedge their bets against potential gentrification uh, of their neighborhood, um, then, you know, how does that community pull together to raise the funds through a nonprofit or through a business? And there, there's a lot of avenues available in the marketplace. So uh, checking out uh, B Corps is that's letter B Corps uh, is one way to do that, where you're looking at people, place and planet as a part of your balance sheet rather than just uh, raw dollars and cents for shareholders. And there's a group called Reconsider and Revalue. So Revalue Investing out of Ypsilanti, Michigan. Angela Barbash there is a national leader in this space and helped get that legislation passed. So there's a coalition that was here at uh, CCS and uh, New Center uh, this year where the Community Capital Conference was held, uh, was a national conference on, on local investing and, and local capital. Okay. So I've got a couple more questions about B Corps. Are they set up mm -hmm. like S corps and C corps and other regular corporations? I mean, uh, is a B corp set up to, you know, create profit for itself and things like that? Yeah, a B corp is is a, a designation that an existing corporation can seek out, uh, and it basically is a framework or, or uh, yeah, it's a framework around how you choose to operate your business, okay. uh, such that. Uh, you can file for an LLC or an S corp with the state of Michigan, and you pay your thirty-five or fifty bucks or whatever it is, and bam, you're a corporation. Right. Um, and then you manage your corporation as you see fit. Uh, where a B corp says that, in addition to just extracting as much capital as possible for the benefit of shareholders from customers and the community around us, um, that we're going to put constraints on ourselves, and those constraints are really advantages because. By taking into consideration the living wage, uh, health insurance, um, the giving back to the community, uh, it becomes less of a marketing plan where you see a lot of big companies do things that look and feel nice at face value, but are a fraction of, of the profits that they're extracting from the community. Sure. Um, where B Corp basically puts into their DNA that, you know, we're going to be looking at not just profits for the sake of shareholders, but also our community and, and how we're engaging with our planet so that you can address through your own small ways uh, how, to, how to deal with climate change or how to deal with uh, cyclical institutionalized poverty in the neighborhood where you're working. Um, there's a lot of ways to give back and B Corps put a framework around how to do that. Great, great information. So for all you out there listening, if you're listening close, please take heed and 
pay attention. Maybe you want to rewind some of the valuable information that David is sharing with us. And also, David, I know you know uh, about social enterprise. Can you explain to some of the listening audience who may not be familiar, what, what is what is social enterprise and what is social capital all about? Sure. So social enterprise is most often affiliated with work that nonprofit or low-profit organizations are, are doing in the, in the marketplace. So you might think of, um, say, D-Town Farms is relatively famous here. They do amazing work. Uh, if D-Town Farms decided that they wanted to get into the pickle business, uh, where they're growing tons of coupon crumbers, they taste really great, and they've got an awesome recipe, and they wanted to start canning pickles. Maybe they already do this now. I don't know. Uh, but uh, just as an example, that the pickles within that nonprofit corporation are an earned revenue source for a nonprofit or even a for-profit corporation. Uh, so the social enterprise component would be is, is how are you engaging with your community to make that work? You know, in the D-Town Founders example, you have a community garden, which is run and managed by uh, residents in the city of Detroit for the benefit of the neighborhoods in Detroit. And um, if you add a money-making opportunity there, you know, what you do with those dollars. So you could be training people in food safety and gardening and packaging distribution and uh, commercial uh, kitchen management uh, and ultimately creating a revenue source for the organization. So it could be pickles, it could be repairing bicycles, it could be making new cars, it could be any number of different things that uh, can be considered a social enterprise. And, and really it's about, you know, uh, how you positively impact the community, uh, which is really a component of being a B Corporation. Um, so there's nothing that says a nonprofit can't make a lot of money and do really well. Right. Uh, they just can't distribute those resources to shareholders. They have to redistribute those resources back into their community through the investments that they make. Okay. Uh, so social enterprise is one way for nonprofits, rather than begging for foundation grants and for donations from the community, um, they could figure out ways to create earned revenue uh, that, that creates uh, a, a new uh, line item on the profit loss sheet that sure. says we're investing in this product widget food or idea or intellectual property, and that's going to return us revenues that allow us to do something new. So for all you out there listening, please take heed because I think the misnomer for many decades about nonprofits is that you, you almost have to starve or you have to, like you say, depend upon foundations and grants, but you can have what we can, what we consider profit making, but revenue generating activities like selling products and services and being able to transfer that revenue into giving back to the community. So nonprofits, if you're thinking about starting up a nonprofit or if you're already a nonprofit existing, please take heed to this information because I know it's a struggle to even have those grants and foundations and seek them. It's enough work just to find them and get awarded the money. But if you have other efforts you can generate revenue with, please take heed and, and pursue those efforts because you have the right to earn revenue for your, for your organization. And uh, thank you, David, for sharing that information. That's very key and vital information that people need to know. Um, Certainly. The other question I wanted to ask you is, someone, let's say someone's thinking about starting either a nonprofit or going to entrepreneurship or in some type of leadership role with their community, what advice would you give them in, in terms of getting started? You have to be present. Um, I, I, someone told me a long time ago, I wish I could credit to whoever said it because um, it's not my original idea, but the people who show up tend to be in charge. Yeah. Um, and showing up means showing up respectfully, not showing up the loudest or the, right. the craziest looking or the worst smelling or the, um, or the whatever. Um, it's showing up and being present and listening and taking in that information. And then within the, the, the opportunity and constraints that you as a, have as an individual step up and take the leadership role. Uh, so while I was at Win, uh, one of the things I like to say in some of my public speaking engagements is that I feel like I'm constantly at war with, uh, with plausible deniability. Yeah. So plausible deniability is this idea that you kind of know what's going on, but you're not really in charge, so it's not your problem. Right. Uh, well, we have an entire political system in this state that's built on plausible deniability. I mean, the Michigan legislature is the only organization I'm aware of where you can have no more than four years of experience to manage a multi-billion dollar budget. Right. 
right? So the state budget is managed by legislators who have no more than four years of experience. And, and because of that, they don't have institutional memory within the state legislature to understand what happened six or 10 years ago, unless they read about it in some wonky news publication or happen to know some people who they can get it from secondhand. Right. So plausible deniability is, is the thing that sits there and allows for negativity to be carried forward as a matter of inertia yep. rather than being able to attack it square on and say that this thing needs to be fixed and I need to motivate the decision makers who can assist with that to get there, uh, whether that's a politician or a member of city council or a you know upstanding business or community leader. Um, everybody's got a reason why it's not their problem. And really, if it's a question of the commons and the survival of our neighborhoods, uh, then it's everybody's problem. So we all have to step up and be present and show up and do the work. And I'm glad you mentioned that because and many times in this podcast, I usually, you know, with my guests talk about with a resurgence of community activism in terms of people getting involved and things happening in the community. Like, for example, young people moving back, people buying housing, being more involved in their community, um, organizations like Life Remodeled, you know, having taken a vested interest in cleaning up the community and helping out. Um, it, it's great to see a lot of that happening more and more now because there was a time, and, and I'm sure you you were, you were familiar with this too, you know, especially in the late, I would say early, mid to late 90s, where it seemed like there was a growing apathy all around. You know, people didn't feel like the the city, so for, they would use the city as an example as an excuse to say, oh, they're not picking up the trash, then they're doing this, somebody else is not doing that. So then people would just say, okay, th then that was a community version of, plausible deniability by not saying I'm not going to clean up my yard. I'm not going to do anything on my end either. But I think there's now an, an energy just the, the, to me, the, the so-called Renaissance that we see, the resurgence that we see is more of a symbolic movement than it is outright, you know, rebirth because there's a renewing energy that you see and the young people are for the most part, I would say the under 40 crowd are kind of are really pushing it. And it's good to see that. Because any movement throughout human history has always been about young people making it happen. So when Detroit's history is being changed now because there, there's a lot of people who are more like in saying, look, we need to have some more community involvement. We want to, yeah, we want to come in and make money, but we don't also want to make a difference. Even if it's just for a short period of time, we at least want to make a presence to show that we care. And I think that now you see that in the neighborhoods now more than you did before. Um, and, and, you know, of course, the narrative of the last few years has always been about downtown and why people don't invest in the neighborhoods. Well, that's starting to happen as well. And that's why I'm glad that people like yourself are out there doing what you're doing to help further that and help people do it the right way, the legal way, the more organized way, because that organization can be built stronger and have a better effort. Um, you know, because downtown, they had a lot of people in the city government, people would go get community development block grant money. They would lobby city council for stuff like that, which is great. But anybody knows that's never enough. I mean, somebody giving you 50000 to operate your operation for a year, that may not cut it because that would end up being somebody's salary as opposed to having the service done in the community. So being able to have those efforts like what you're teaching people and helping even on the real estate end, helping people gain wealth and gain homeownership and things like that, and having people have a different side of what capitalism is all about. You know, it's nothing wrong with capitalism as a concept, but when it's turned the wrong way it, it it leads to a lot of dangers that we're seeing now but the social enterprise effort the b corp effort you know and the things you're doing in the community help stem the tide with that and help us in the right direction so like i said before man i really commend you for the work you're doing because it's very very important to the community thank you yeah a friend once once asked me what's the easiest way to make two million dollars and i sat there and i thought for a second and he's like hey there mr silly you start with a million and when you're in your community where, you know, when I look at, you know, affordable housing investments in air quotes, um, and we're looking at 80% of area median income qualifying as affordable housing, when 80% of the area median income is roughly twice the, the median, actual median income of many of the individuals in our neighborhoods, you know, we're, we're, you know, 15 degrees off course yeah. in what we consider opportunities for, for folks to, to take a step forward. 
Um, so, you know, you, if you start with the basics, you know, you need education and literacy. Yeah. Um, and those are two things that, that we lost in 2014 with the, the Highland Park kids that sued the state of Michigan. Yeah. Uh, and the, the state court of appeals said that you have neither a right to a quality education nor a right to literacy if you're in a K-12 student in the state of Michigan. Right. Uh, which, and w- my reading is that, okay, so now we've got something very close to, if not already, Jim Crow on the books in the state of Michigan. And the communities that don't have investment in their schools because of the formulas that the voters in the state of Michigan passed in the early 90s uh, to fund our schools are, you know, lowest common denominator in my mind. Um, So we need to work on a state constitutional amendment to to make sure we guarantee the right to a quality education to every student who only gets one shot at public education. And then we need to look at, you know, means in our communities to – to, to gather our the wealth that we do have so that it can be invested locally uh, before we go and spend our money at some national box store that is sending our cash to Bentonville, Arkansas, and eventually to China to pay for the things that we're buying. Sure. Uh, so I think there, there's a lot of ways to, to create community capital and wealth, but if you're starting with a little and you double it, you still don't have a lot. Uh, so figuring out how to double and triple and quadruple and take ownership of that uh, that cycle is, is a part of what I think the community capital movement can can try to help address. Absolutely. And, and what I hope for, too, is that the same fervor and infectious attitude and energy people have as far as like the tech companies downtown and other things, the, the hotbed kind of industries, hopefully community involvement will be the same way. You know, I'm hoping that people will get more inspiration, more energy, and be more courageous in, in getting out here and doing the things you and I are talking about doing because it's it's there, it's open, just like every every other opportunity out here. Community involvement is also open for a lot of great leaders and great innovators and a lot of – just the space is open for a lot of great things to happen. I just hope that – you know, I hope that the, the, the energy gets put into that just as much as everything else. You know what I mean? We all have master's degrees with the understanding that life isn't fair. Right. Um, so if we set aside any sense of entitlement that we have to, to fairness and, and, and decency in a marketplace that doesn't react as such, and you're, you're present, you listen, and you do the work, then I think that's the right cocktail to, to, to set aside uh, sort of corporate or mass media expectations of success with what sure. kind of success you can actually build with your neighbors. Absolutely. And then, and then once people work together, then, you know, it, there was a time back, i say from the – I don't know, thirties, forties, all the way up until I would say the late eighties, early nineties, where there was always a sense of community in the neighborhood. I mean, people knew each other, you knew your neighbors, you shared with your neighbors, you know, cup of sugar thing kind of thing. So, you know, hopefully at some point it'll come back to that as well. And with the reinvestment that's, that's, that's on the horizon that looks like it's going to take place pretty soon. They can get back to that kind of community, you know, atmosphere as well. I would say in some ways we have that community now, especially like the District 6 Leadership Series that I talked about earlier with uh, uh, Councilman Raquel Castano-Lopez. I didn't know these neighbors that were working in, you know, blocks that were five or six miles from where I live. And I I enjoyed the experience because now I do have an idea of what they're doing in their neighborhood. You know, there might only be 15 or 20 houses within three blocks of where some of these individuals are living, but they've already reclaimed their neighborhood and the way that they can do yeah. uh, and they need additional support from you know neighbors that are a few more blocks away to continue building on that success right uh so i, I think of you know some some of the advocacy work that you know has been done in, in deep southwest detroit over air quality standards and and opportunities for our, our, our ch- uh, kids our neighbors children to to seek education opportunity and uh you know it's heart-wrenching to see that it takes so much time to get such simple wins, yeah. uh, but they're persisting either way. And I think the work's being done. It's just, uh, uh, it's um, sort of diffuse in a way that, you know, instant gratification media and social media uh, don't fully uh, sort of uh, respect. That's right. And in and, and the Southwest area, you know, it's a very unique area because it's stones throw away from the rouge plants and all the, the, the burning of the trash sewage stuff and all that pollution. And it's just great to, to hear and see that there's a community out there that really is invested in preserving what they consider for themselves 
mental health, physical health, and, and just the quality of li living. And, and, and everybody wants to have a decent quality of living, so it's good to see that they're fighting for that, too. And the community has reacted very strongly to the challenges that the Avenue of Fashion has been having yeah. uh, up in Livernois between, you know, McNichols and, and 8 Mile. Um, you know, I think a well-intended uh, process that the neighborhoods were seeking to make beautify and, and make their in, their neighborhood and commerce area more intimate. Um, and, you know, the unintended consequences that that has really messed up a lot of local small businesses. Yeah. Um, so the response is there. And, you know, I think of the, you know, the responses over in the Osborne neighborhood to the, the you know, the, the challenges with, uh, you know, cyclical violence that have, that have happened there and, and the responses of, of you know, Eastside community groups to, to say that, you know, we have a different way forward if you're willing to be present, listen, and, and do the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So turning the conversation a little bit more locally, how did you get involved with Bamboo Detroit? How did you come across them and, and end up becoming a member? So um, while I was at Wynn, I had the opportunity to work on a report that was uh, commissioned by the William Davidson Foundation in collaboration with the New Economy Initiative and the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan. Uh, and uh, that report was analyzing the entrepreneurship ecosystem that has been purposefully invested in by many of those foundations for the last 10 plus years. Um, and a, a part of that mapping work was looking at, you know, where are the entrepreneur accelerators and incubators and co-working spaces and all of these sorts of buzz terms uh, that really have to do with providing opportunity for access and resources. Uh, and I followed Amanda for a long time. Amanda Luan at, uh, at Bamboo on the social medias. And uh, I basically went on the internet and said, you know, of the, because I, I had a space at Pony Ride for, for a bit. And when okay. Pony Ride was basically closing down to, to do their next thing up in hopefully Milwaukee Junction, I said, you know, I need a home where I can rely on uh, a clean wallet space with conference rooms and people that are super interesting. And I said, okay, is that Green Garage? Is that Hunt Street Station? Is that WeWork? Is that Bamboo? And I did the cost analysis and just started, you know, interviewing folks. And Bamboo felt like home to me of the options that I was aware of and could afford. Uh, so I, I really appreciate the, the work that's been done around Bamboo over the years. And, and it's sort of open, inviting um, space. Uh, which is, you know, each of the co-working spaces that are have popped up around the city have sort of their own personality and DNA. And I think uh, Bamboo's is, is strongly rooted in, in uh, the desire for, for openness and equity. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and once you become part of the family, it literally is like a family. I mean, it's welcoming. And I think the most common thread I've heard from most people either knowing people in the bamboo family and or being and or being on this podcast is the same sentiment you just expressed you know when when the doors were open they were welcome and you know people fit right in and and that's always been a staple between Amanda and Mike and the, the founding co-founders you know they really kept it that spirit alive and they still do and it's I'm just glad to see that they're growing bigger and better and and you know they may end up having other locations as well because of the growth which is great to see. I mean, they've pretty much taken over the the Julian Madison building, which uh, shout out to Ms. Madison. And I'm glad that we're able to have occupancy at a rate with her building because it's a fabulous building and she's worked long and hard enough to preserve it and keep it going. So, you know, being, being part of that community space just there is, is a lot. It means a lot. And, and it meant a lot to me and my involvement because I started coming around there about 2015 where they were on brush and, just be able to see that growth and being able to meet people and have relationships and friendships through that, through that family really, it means a lot. Um, and, and, and then looking at the, 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 the climate around us, where do where do you see, what's your take on the Detroit entrepreneurship and community development scene? Where, where do you think it's headed? Do you have any like um, visions or, or, or things you would like to share with the audience that you think where it's headed? Well, I think one of the first places to start is, you know, at my core, I'm a data geek. So I, I try to move past anecdote as quickly as I can to try to figure out what, are we making a determination based on an outlier presentation or are we looking at the larger bell curve of experiences that people have? Right. Um, so if you have some time, your listeners may want to check out on the New Economy Initiative's website, 
uh, they put out a whole huge report on the health and status of the entrepreneurship ecosystem. So when um, I've traveled the country and you talk about entrepreneurism, especially in uh, relation to communities of color, you kind of get that heavy breath or the rolling of the eyes because entrepreneurship, if you look at the raw numbers, is really about white guys on the coast who get venture capital to do other white guy things. Right. Um, which, you know, whatever, it has its place. Uh, but it's never really been about women or anybody else. Uh, where in the Detroit region, the foundation community that's been investing in the entrepreneurship ecosystem here has gotten some really tremendous returns for that investment. And those returns look like much higher than, than average uh, participation of females in the ecosystem. Uh, almost obscenely interesting large numbers for participation of, of uh, uh, communities of color in, in the ecosystem versus what you would see if you were measuring it against what's happening in the Valley or the Triangle, uh, the Valley in California or the Triangle in the Carolina. Uh, so I, I think, you know, for, for that system to move forward, um, about 80% of the entrepreneurship ecosystem that we see uh, is funded in some way, shape, or form by a philanthropic entity. Yep. Uh, so TechNown would not exist if not but for uh, tremendous investments by NEI and other, other philanthropists. Right. Um, you know, Bamboo and, and Pony Ride in these places wouldn't exist if there were not a desire to engage in social enterprise in the community. Right. Uh, so I, I think it, it, what I said earlier, it's all about education and creating a culture where, you know, the youth in the city and in the suburbs all see opportunities for their ideas to play out. Right. Um, because the, the advance of Industry 4.0 and the continuing rapid pace of automation of things that humans have been compensated to do over the last century or so is, is rapidly changing. So studying workforces, you know, what are the things that companies and nonprofits and governments find useful and willing to pay a salary for someone to trade their time for a paycheck? Right. Um, and with automation, it's becoming much, much, much more efficient to whittle out the human engagement and create highly specialized human skills to right. manage those systems. So entrepreneurship is an opportunity to say that, um, you know, you can actually have a community garden that allows for subsistence living or even profitable living uh, in an urban center like Detroit. Um, but the entrepreneurs need to be there. You need to have the person who's willing to wake up at three o'clock in the morning to take the orders from the restaurants, right. to pick up from the farmers, to right. take them to the farmers and set up those distribution methods that, you know, what's old is new again. Right. Uh, so we lost a lot of that. And I think entrepreneurship is a, is a means for people that, that have, you know, showed up, listened and, and worked their tails off uh, to say that, you know, this is what I'm passionate about, how I can do it. Uh, so entrepreneurship programs, you know, whether that's with a, a STEM pathway, uh, an IT coding pathway or right. an agrarian pathway or a, you know, skilled trades and, and union apprenticeship pathway, there's there's tremendous opportunities out there if but for the information and the social network that individuals need to be able to get the reference to be able to do the thing that they didn't know they didn't know. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad you brought those points up because the next question I was going to ask you is what, what do you think, what are the strengths of low, if anybody could, whether they're in Michigan or outside of Michigan and that they're if they could choose anywhere in the world to be and if they chose Detroit, what would be the strengths of locating here for their service or business and what specific opportunities? I know we you touched on some of them already, but what would be the specific opportunity they could see? Like, you know, we talk about we can talk about mobility and things like that. But what other like specific things can you see that people can can tap into in terms of developing something here? So last week I was on a 2000 mile road trip. Uh, me and my lady went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa to visit a friend. Cedar Rapids has a burgeoning tech scene and, and is, is a fairly wealthy community. Uh, then we went on to Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, to, I really wanted to see a concert there, so we had the resources and did it. Okay. Uh, Omaha has the highest number of millionaires per capita of any city in the United States right. and is uh, a really a good example of what can happen if a community has the ability to invest in itself. 
Uh, we don't necessarily always have those abilities in Michigan because the legislature is hamstrung the community and economic development opportunities. For right. Uh, so going from Omaha, we went up to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Minneapolis is an amazing place. I don't think I could live there, but I would like to visit there many more times because they, again, have invested in their community with rail and, and rapid buses and beautiful public walkways and, and parks and access. Um, so when I come back home to Detroit, I think, okay, of all these places I've been across the country in the last week and over the decades, um, where could I imagine myself living? And the only other place I can imagine myself living in the long term would be Chicago. And we all have our people that are in Chicago. So the Detroit-Chicago connection is long and, and true. Yep. Um, but I choose to live in the city of Detroit because this is my home. This is where my people are. And this is where I feel like I can have uh, the best impact in my community. And the entrepreneurship ecosystem that I was talking about, if you go dig up that NEI report from their website, we'll talk about all of the opportunities that are very purposeful that they're offering individuals that if you have the time and the interest and you choose to show up, there's a good chance you're going to meet somebody who's going to refer you to one of the hundreds of organizations in our region that are doing this sort of process improvement and planning for entrepreneurs. Right. And whether that's a business, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's uh, you know just a passion project, uh, there are tremendous resources available at, at no cost or low cost. So to think that you could pay $150 a month to be a co-working member at Bandu, get a desk, have access to conference room facilities to meet with clients and do quiet work um, is, is really tremendous in the marketplace. And, you know, that is that $150 a month. If you can't afford that, then you're still in the process of figuring out how to bootstrap those things together. And whether it's at Tech Town, whether it's Ann Arbor Spark, or whether it's at, you know, an o OU incubator, um, there's just tremendous resources at our community colleges or universities and, and in these sort of social enterprise spaces uh, for those that are really motivated to figure it out. Um, the doors are open and welcoming in almost every instance that I've, I've experienced. So I want to do that work in Detroit because I love this city and um, you know, it's home for me. Um, so um, yeah, that's why I want to be here. And, and the ecosystem, you know, if you're talking about mobility and the Planet M folks over at WeWork on Woodward, you know, they've got, you know, entire spaces set up just to help companies be able to connect with uh, tier one suppliers and, and OEMs, right. original equipment manufacturers like Ford and GM, right. uh, which are really an accelerated pathway to finding the viability of your ideas and your products. Um, and, you know, soup that's run through Build Institute is, uh, you know, a, a tremendous way to, to vet your ideas and get uncomfortable in front of an audience and explain what it is that you want to do because your idea is worth about as much as your idea weighs yes. until you can actually operationalize it and, and bring it out of yourself into the world. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then turning the conversation into this piece of for people that are listening, they want to get involved. How do you how would you how would you suggest? for them to get involved in the, our ecosystem, in our community here? Uh, I think that you can listen to any number of the installments of this very podcast to figure out who are the people that you need to talk to on these programs uh, to get the advice or the reference or um, the little spark that, you know, takes you from the idea place that you are now or the, you know, or perhaps you're more, you know, uh, sophisticated and you've actually got something up and running and you want to scale it, um, then again, the people that are on this list of things, I mean, you know, I saw, you know, Doug Song's forecast there. I mean, I worked at Ann Arbor Spark for years and years. I had an office there yeah. uh, with a small, small company that I managed and, and to know Doug from the Ann Arbor ecosystem, you know, at arm's length, I think we might've met briefly and I would say I know him, but um, to observe his operation and how it grew and scaled right. and to now have a place in Detroit. I mean, you've got, you know, a legit uh, individual who was able to become an outlier and cash in on the idea because he made it happen. Right. Um, so you have access to those kinds of people, um, you know, sending the email and asking for 30 minutes for coffee is is really simple and it's it's sort of a cliche but 
Um, you know, whenever I'm teaching classes, I can throw my email address out there and likely I'm not going to be contacted by anybody in the crowd uh, sure. because they're off doing their own thing as soon as they're done. Sure. And the people that do follow through are the ones that I've seen really accelerate their opportunities over time. So there are a lot of goodwill actors in this town that are happy to connect people uh, without remuneration. So listeners, please take heed. Wonderful nuggets of information and inspiration here. If you need to reach out, like you say, you know, we, we we encourage you to listen to previous episodes of this podcast. Maybe there's somebody who may spark an interest for you, or maybe you get, get some inf- information and inspiration from this actual episode. So before we go, David, before we wrap it up, is there any contact information you would like to share with the listening audience? Sure. Uh, my LinkedIn profile is pretty easy to find at David Palmer 76. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Palmer 76. Uh, and those have avenues for phone, telephone, or for telephone and uh, email, uh, all that kind of good stuff. Um, I have a website, bcpalmer.com, okay. bcpalmer, P-A-L-M-E-R.com, uh, and there I'll have, you know, the, the sort of outward-facing salesy kind of thing as far as real estate, nonprofits, workforce, and, and politics. Uh, so uh, but LinkedIn, I think, is a really tremendous resource because that's all about the social network, right? As you can figure out who are the two or three people connected, removed from you that uh, would be really helpful to have a conversation with to accelerate your goals. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks, David, for coming on the Doers Network and doing the interview. Really appreciate you sharing all your great information and your story and, and all of the good work you do. And I, again, commend you and thank you for all the work you do in Detroit. Thank you for staying as a Native Detroiter and Michigander as well. Just thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, no, I appreciate your time and your passion for putting up this podcast. It's a lot of work, and uh, thank you for your efforts. Oh, you're more than welcome. I do it for people like you. That's why I do it. So for all you listening, thank you for listening once again to the Doers Network, where actors grow and thrive. Thanks for listening to our interview with David Palmer. If you would like to reach David directly, you can reach him on either LinkedIn or Twitter under at symbol David Palmer 76. That's D A V I D P A L M E R, the numeral seven and the numeral six. You can also visit his website, dcpalmer.com. That's D C P A L M E R.com. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit. Located in the heart of downtown Detroit, Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you'll be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboodetroit.com. That's I-N-F-O at bamboodetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on the Doers Network. Thanks for listening. to the doers podcast where actives grow and thrive the doers podcast is produced by bamboo detroit network for more information visit us at bamboo detroit.com <laughs>